0: fascinating people, insightful stories, an hour of enlightenment. This is Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio.
1: Everyone has good ideas, but few of us rarely act on them. Why is that? Well, I'll bet you can think of at least one example right now of that one that got away idea because, well, why is it that it got away from you? What was stopping you from pursuing that inspiration that seems to come out of nowhere? Why did you dismiss it or just ignore it? Did you think you're just not smart enough, you're not Einstein, that only natural-born geniuses have what it takes to rise above the mere mortals? Well that kind of thinking is deeply ingrained in our culture, and our guest today says it's all just a big fat myth. And we want to thank Alan Gannett for joining us here on Conversations on iHub Radio. Thank you so much for being here today.
0: Thanks for having me, Charlie.
1: The book is The Creative Curve: How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. Alan is the founder and CEO of Trackmaven. That's a software analytics firm. They've had clients like Microsoft, Marriott, Saks, Home Depot. You get the idea, lots of big companies. He's been on the 30 under 30 list for both Inc. and Forbes. That means he's a millennial. And the <laughs> website is thecreativecurve.com. Well, Alan, tell us a little bit about yourself growing up as, as a kid because you liked patterns and then you became obsessed as a young man with getting himself cast on game shows. That's, <laughs> tell us about that.
0: Yeah. So I've always been one to like to reverse engineer stuff. I was the only child of uh, very divorced parents. You know, they were together for maybe like eight months. And so they both worked. So I just had a lot of time on my hands. And so I always had to find ways to sort of amuse myself and um, think about things. So one of the things I very much fell in love with was just trying to like conquer different little challenges, trying to figure out you know, what was the pattern behind what made things work. You know, like as a teenager, I was constantly playing video games, and I, I realized that especially then the AIs, you could kind of figure out what they would do, and you could become really good at these video games. And so I think the story you're referring to that I mentioned in the book is um, when I was 18, I had this phase where I thought, I bet you it's not that hard to get on a game show if you really fi- you know, think about how to do it. And so, I applied for like all these game shows, and Wheel of Fortune was the first one to get back to me. They had an audition. I'd never watched the show before, and so I just watched a whole bunch of episodes. I read a bunch of forum posts about it, and I realized they really don't care if you're good at the puzzles. <laughs> all they want is someone who can enunciate, and so I drank a lot of espresso, and I got there, and I enunciated, and I got cast basically immediately. Um, And I did horribly on the show because I didn't know how to solve the puzzles.
1: (laughs) That's not, you didn't do the homework to figure out what the pattern was.
0: I didn't do the right homework that time. I just just thought about getting cast.
1: Well, talk about the actual founding of Track Maven and how your work there has informed this idea that there's really a science behind the creative process and not just those lightning in the bottle moments that we're all so conditioned to believe from books and TV shows and movies like like the Oscar-winning Amadeus that you write about in The Creative Curve. And, uh, you know, there is a way that the creative process actually works.
0: In our culture it's so interesting we have this idea that creativity is this sort of mystical magical organic thin thing that you know some people are just drawn to and some people have in such vast quantities that most of us don't and so what's interesting is i've always been sort of a left brain right brain combo guy and so my company i started six years ago track maven we basically take marketing data from these big consumer brands, and we mine it for patterns. Like, what are the things that are working? What are the messages? What are the themes? What are the channels? What are the techniques that are working? What you find is there's actually a lot of reason and rationality to what consumers are drawn to. And it changes over time, but it's all trackable, and you can start to predict it and get really good at it. And so this sort of interest, this interest in this idea of, okay you know, if marketing can really be predicted, if there can be more automation that, well, can you start predicting creativity more broadly? And so the whole idea for the book came from, I started talking to people and uh, I started talking to a lot of marketers and creatives. And I kept hearing this thing about how, you know, well, I'm not that creative. I'm not, I'm not that person. At the same time, I was looking at all this data and I saw, well, there's a lot of patterns in here. And so the book really came out of this frustration where, you know, I, I had these friends, I had these clients, I had these people I was working with, and over and over again, they would limit themselves. They would say, "Well, I, I can't do those things. You know, I'm not, I don't have those magical skills or abilities." And so, the book really, um, you know, is a is is, is a hope, hopefully going to debunk that and hopefully show people that no, no, you can you can be creative.
1: Well, one of the first examples that you look at in The Creative Curve is the story behind Paul McCartney writing the just huge, massive Beatles hit Yesterday, which, as the story goes, just came to Paul in a dream. And uh, so talk about the reality of how long it actually took for that song to come to be and the actual process that Paul went through. So we get to the finished song.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing story because it's one of the sort of off-repeated examples of a flash of genius moment. And the story goes that Paul McCartney one day woke up and he had the melody for yesterday, the main melody, just pop into his head. He literally dreamed it. And this is the most recorded song in history, right? This is a prolific song. And so the idea that this just came to someone is kind of shocking. And here's the problem. The actual story, and actually almost all of these stories, when you dig into these stories of flashes of genius, it's much more complex. You know, Paul McCartney basically dreamed, quote unquote, six notes for the song yesterday. He then took 20 months 20 months to actually go from those six notes to the completed song. This isn't the idea that, you know, some man just woke up and wrote, you know, the world's most recorded song. No, it's the story of hard work, hard, thoughtful work. And you see this pattern again and again, you know, J.K. Rowling, you know, famously, with Harry Potter was on a train and an idea for Harry Potter hit her, it just came to her in this moment. And we've all heard this story. But From that point, it took her five years of work, five years of diligent work. She was in welfare for some of this time to get this book done. It's not the story of someone just having an idea and then getting it to fruition. There's a whole lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears from point A to point B.
1: Well, Alan Gannett is our guest, and the book is The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. Well, you also take a look back at in, in history here, and you write about something that's one, one of those things we're not so very proud of, even in the United States, about Lewis Terman and the fake science of eugenics, which wasn't just the Nazis, we used it here too, and the impact it had on how we think about intelligence even today. Some people still hold these same ideas today. So talk about how that furthered the myth of genius, Alan?
0: Oh, yeah. So so it's, really, so it's really fascinating how our views of creativity have changed over time. And so in the book, what I do is the first half of the book is explaining the history of our philosophy around creativity and how it's changed over time and then debunking it. The second half of the book, I interviewed about 25 famous creatives, so billionaires, Oscar winners, Tony Award winners, explain things they did to actually enhance their creativity. And in the first half of the book, one of the things I explain is that um, your know, genius and creativity for a long time have gone hand in hand. And it's actually been really interesting because, um, you know, right now we have a relatively positive view of creativity and that hasn't all always been the truth. Uh, back in the late 1800s, we viewed people who were very good at things as bad. You know, why are, they, why are they so good at one thing? They must be terrible at everything else. We actually raised up on a pedestal the sort of quote-unquote average man who was well-adjusted and could do most things well. And so in the early 1900s, Lewis Terman, who viewed himself as sort of this amazing um, natural talent, he Americanized the French IQ test, came up with the Stanford-Binet IQ test. And he wanted to use this test to actually do two things. One, to show that people with high IQs were actually normal and healthy, and to show that people with low IQs were not. Right? The flip side of sort of what was the common notion at the time. And so what he did was he tested a whole bunch of young school-age children and then started following all these kids who actually tested with the genius IQ, he started sending them surveys every five years. Even after he died, they continued doing it to see how would their life progress? How are these people identified the as children as geniuses? How would their lives progress? And what's funny, by the way, as a side note, um, the nickname he gave these kids were his termites, which is kind of terrifying. But what was so interesting is that he found what he wanted to find, which is that, yes, people with high IQs were normal when it came to you know, divorce and depression and alcoholism and all this stuff. But they were also relatively normal when it came to success. In fact, among this group, you know, there were people who were retail employees, who were mechanics. In fact, the only two kids he tested that went on to win a Nobel Prize were two kids who didn't make the genius cut. And so Lewis Terman is an interesting example of someone who helped normalize the concept of genius and creativity. But what he also showed us, when you actually look at it, is that we overstate the relationship between IQ, which is measuring a very narrow set of cognitive skills, with creativity, with genius, with these high-level accomplishments. We really, in, in our culture, have this sort of false notion, this false dichotomy. And you know, Lewis Terman's legacy is tarnished by the fact that the IQ test also became a tool that was actually used to assess, well, who is quote-unquote feeble-minded, as they called it at the time, so that they could do things like forced sterilization. Um, and so there is a, this sort of interesting and complex history to the IQ test.
1: Well, what really makes a genius then alan talk, talk about how you write in the book subject Matter, Gatekeepers, and the individual work together to actually make creativity and, and neuroscience is here in the mix too
0: yeah, and so one of the things to understand a sort of a foundation to this is when academics talk about creativity, they're typically talking about what they call capital C creativity. And the difference is important. See, lowercase c creativity is just creating things, like the physical act of creating things. But typically, when we talk about creativity in our culture, we're talking about what they call capital C creativity, which is things that people actually recognize as valuable, as interesting, and as compelling. And what's so cool about creativity is that there's this really interesting dynamic that a lot of people overlook that once you understand it, it actually makes creativity much less scary. And that's the dynamic that for something to be deemed creative, people have to agree it's creative. There's a circular sort of social construct that goes on. And once you realize the sort of social construct dynamic of creativity, well, it all sort of becomes much, much more reasonable and logical to digest. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that all of these creative geniuses I interviewed, they all have these creative communities they build around themselves that have these different actors that have these different people who play these different roles. And so, for example, one of the roles that's really important Um, is a prominent promoter. You see over and over again, the people who we deem creative geniuses very early off and on had some sort of prominent person, some person with reputation and credibility who could lend them that credibility, who could actually say, hey, culture, hey, world, this person is worth paying attention to. You should look at them. You should assess their creativity. You see this a lot with musical acts, right? Experienced musical acts will have openers who are younger, who are earlier in their careers. You know, um, Taylor Swift became famous after her tour where she opened for Rascal Flats. Shawn Mendes then opened for Taylor Swift. Now Shawn Mendes sells out stadiums and has people open for him. And so what you see in all these different industries is there's sort of this apprenticeship model where credibility is extended to the next generation. And that is an essential part of the creative process. And so if you're creating a great American novel, but no one ever reads it, well, you're missing entire half of the creativity equation. And that's part of the thing that I think that people miss is this entirely human dynamic of creativity.
1: Well, in 2008, Malcolm Gladwell famously coined the 10,000 hour rule in his best-selling book, Outliers. And you write in the creative curve that it's become a mantra in business and self-improvement circles and And of course, if you've not been living under a rock, you know this too. (laughs) If you go to Google, there's like 140,000 references in a a search. So talk about why there are two main flaws with Malcolm's rule.
0: For this book, I interviewed as many of the great living professors and researchers who study talent development, creativity, and the field of greatness, which is a really fun name for an academic field, the field of greatness. (laughs) And um, what's interesting about this group is they do not like Malcolm Gladwell. And um, the main reason why is that the 10,000 hours rule comes from research from a guy named K. Anders Ericsson, who wrote a book called Peak, and he's done a lot of really interesting research on talent development. And the thing is that Malcolm Gladwell says with 10,000 hours of practice, you can become good at anything. You can become world-class at anything. And there's two big issues with this. That's not what Anders Ericsson's paper actually says. The first issue is that what the paper says is that 10,000 hours was the average across skills and across people. The whole idea that at 10,000 hours you magically become good at something is just sort of silly on its face. There's no cell in your brain that goes, oh, it's been 10,000 hours, good job. The second big issue with the 10,000 hours rule is that Malcolm describes it as 10,000 hours of practice, but that is not, that is not anything close to the point that K. Anders is making. He emphasizes very heavily that it's all about a concept called deliberate practice. It was 10,000 hours on average of deliberate practice, and the difference is very important. See, practice is just doing something on repeat. So, you know, many of you have driven your commute, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of hours, but... You're not becoming a NASCAR driver. You're just becoming more and more automatic when you drive, and it becomes less and less of a conscious activity. That's what happens when you just do rote practice. Deliberate practice is actually taking a skill and breaking it down to these small component parts. It's The difference between saying, hey, I'm going to practice basketball by doing a game, or I'm going to do all these drills over and over again of mid-court left-handed dribbling. Or you see this with painters who will practice... Um, you know, their brush pressure and their brush efficiency by drawing strokes on a canvas and trying to recreate them and seeing how controlled they can get with their paintbrush. So it's about taking these big macro skills and breaking them down, these micro skills, so that you don't slip into doing them in an automatic subconscious way. To learn and to improve, you need to constantly keep the skill conscious, as you know, Kay Anders Erickson you know, gave me the quote that I put in the book. He says, "You know, Malcolm misread my paper," and that seems like the
1: truth. You spent two years interviewing people for the book and cast your net really wide. You talked to authors, best-selling writers, TV writers, culinary bigwigs, YouTube creators, techies, and even a politician in the mix there. So, talk mm-hmm. about some of the people that you chose to include and and why you chose them, and give us a couple examples of things that they told you that you really weren't expecting to hear that surprised you.
0: So I tried to interview this really eclectic set of people, right? So like, you know, David Rubenstein who's the billionaire co-founder of the Carlisle Group, who's sort of one of the forefathers of private equity. I interviewed Alexis O'Hanian, the founder of Reddit. I interviewed Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo behind some of the music from La La Land, Dear Evan Hansen, and The Greatest Showman, not bad. Um, Kenya Barris from Blackish, Nina Jacobson from Walt Disney Motion Picture Studios. And what was so interesting across all these interviews um, was, was that First of all, this is more, this is not actually... You know, part of the book per se. But one thing I just want to point out is that these people were incredibly nice. I think we have this notion of these creative geniuses as jerks and as these mean-spirited people. And you know, Steve Jobs comes um, you know comes to mind as someone who's characterized this way. But these people were also just incredibly nice. And that's one of the things I thought was so interesting was that people who've reached sort of exceptional levels of accomplishment were often very, very nice. But more practically when it comes to creativity, one of the things I thought was so interesting that I talk about in the book was, you know, we have this notion that like creators are so active they're constantly doing they're constantly creating and you know we're just consumers we're just passively taking this in and you know woe be us but These creators that I interviewed, they were actually some of the biggest consumers of information. You know, I would talk to these people, and over and over again, I heard some variation of, oh, when I was a kid, I read every book in the library, or I watched every movie in the video store, or, um, you know, I would constantly go to my room and just listen to music to get away from my parents fighting, or whatever it was. And not only was that a childhood experience, but something that continued into today, where even today I found they typically spend three to four hours consuming information in their narrow niche. We have this idea that you know, these creatives have to be Renaissance people who know a lot about a lot, but it turns out that these creative people who accomplish such great heights, they actually tend to be kind of poorly adjusted when it comes to a um, sort of a content ingestion perspective. They go very, very deep on a very, very narrow lane. And the reason why this is so important is that one of the key elements of creativity is creating things that are the right blend of the familiar and the novel. It turns out what scientists have found is we don't like ideas that are so radically new. We also don't like ideas that are so familiar that they're boring. It actually turns out the ideas we like the most are the ones that are a blend of a familiar and a novel. You know, the first Star Wars was essentially a Western in space. Right now, there's these sushi burritos that are taking over California and the East Coast, and it's you know, it's sushi, but it's in a burrito. These ideas that are familiar and they are novel, they tend to intrigue us. And so, consumption is very important to creativity because if part of your job as a creator. If to create things that are the right blend of the familiar and the novel, well, then you better know what's out there.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the, the learnable four-step process that you write about in The Creative Curve. We've got consumption, imitation, creative communities, and iterations. And of course, we've talked all about that throughout the interview here, but it's a learnable process.
0: Hundred percent. And what's amazing? One of the things I found, I talk about in the book, is that you know I went out and met all these academics who've spent their lives studying creativity and talent development. And one of the things I expected when I went into the book was I'm like, okay, you know, based on my experiences, it seems like there is a lot more rationality and reason behind it. But when I talk to these academics who've spent their entire professional careers on it, wow! I mean, there there is a lot of consensus that natural born talent, natural born creativity doesn 't really exist, and I found that the consensus to me was very striking. Um, you know these researchers who've looked at these issues that spend their time they do studies on this there 's a lot of consensus that People really can become good at anything if they take the right approach. It's not just about hard work like Malcolm Gladwell writes. It's about hard, thoughtful work. It's about practicing the right ways. It's about connecting with the right people. It's about interfacing with culture around you and not being isolated. And once you start to see that that comes together, a lot of it makes a lot more sense.
1: Well, Alan Gannett is our guest here on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The book is The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. His website is thecreativecurve.com. Thank you so much for being here today.
0: Thanks, Charlie.